Welcome to Churches Changing Podcast. I'm your host, Beth Estock, and today I'm honored to talk with Ray Altman from North Central San Antonio in the Rio, Texas Annual Conference of the United Methodist Church. He is a United Methodist pastor of the New Wineskins Micro Church Movement. Welcome, Ray. Thank you. It's so good to be here with you on this podcast that has had so many wonderful people. Yes. Yeah, so I found out about you through the Parish Collective and said, wow, this looks interesting. I need to I need to interview you. So can you tell us a little bit about how you came to start New Wineskins? Sure. So I grew up in the church. My dad is a retired United Methodist pastor, but I was also influenced that besides United Methodist youth and children's ministry and everything growing up, I I was also influenced by a network of small groups that were in homes when I was in high school. And so that that had a formative element for me growing up. And then when I got into college, I really got interested in the new monastic movement that inspired me and kind of re-energized my faith, helped me feel like it could apply to a world full of problems, social problems in a, in a new way. And so those things together have always been with me, like as a part of my faith and then when I entered into ministry. So I've always had a desire to do work like that as a pastor and in the church. But really what happened with that kind of made new wineskins come to be was when when I was uh, appointed as a pastor to a local church, I felt called to become more involved in my neighborhood, like get to know mm. my neighbors, start to discern the work that God was doing in my neighborhood. And so I actually asked my church leaders if I could spend more time in my community and with my neighbors and was given permission to do that. And that kind of, you know, I was thinking about this, it kind of like ruined me in a sense, because the <laughs> joy and adventure that I experienced with God in my neighborhood, which was not the same context as work in the local church, was so energizing and joyful and in a lot of ways liberating that I had to keep doing it. I wanted to keep doing that. It, it, was, a, it was almost like opening a new gift of grace in my life of faith to that point. And so I talked to my bishop after a few years of of doing that in the, so to back up just a second, I, I, the joy that I had, I started sharing with people in my church, inviting lay people in my church to do similar things in their communities and their neighborhoods. And then I said, can I do this full time? I asked my, you know, higher ups, uh, is this something I could do? And it certainly was, got some questions, you know, about this is not like a normal church start situation, but I was given that opportunity. And I've been given that opportunity in my conference. I'm very grateful for that for, for the last several years. And, and here we are today. So that's kind of how it got started. And you started right when COVID started, right? Or just before COVID? Yeah, the appointment began about, you know, seven months, eight months before COVID began. Sure. And so this appointment was to get to know your neighbors and to kind <laughs> of be in community and boom, COVID happened. So then... Then how did you pivot? What did you do? Yeah, you know, interestingly, I talked to a lot of people for whom neighboring really ramped up during COVID. They kind of had these relationships that were formed where they'd sit out on the porch or in the front driveway and get to know neighbors during COVID. Their kind of bubble was formed. 
interestingly, we had good connections and had a little bit of that going on, but in some ways, some of it did stall because of COVID. And one thing that pivoted early on was, is, is we found other pastors who were interested in learning about the work we were doing and just being in community with practitioners that were trying to be the church in their neighborhood. So I, I found myself talking to more and more pastors and church leaders that were saying, God's been calling me to the neighborhood. And mm-hmm. I don't, I wasn't trained to do this. This is not what my ordination trained me to do or what seminary trained me to do was to be a pastor in my neighborhood. And so we we started doing online cohorts through the pandemic, and that's still going on today. That's something that we continue to do. And really, you know, I don't I don't feel like I'm an expert in any way, but I am a practitioner. And so that's where my voice and authority comes from in gathering and convening groups of church leaders is to say, I'm trying to do this too. I'm trying to do this in my own uh, spaces in my own neighborhood. Uh, so that was one big pivot. And another is that we did form an c- online community during the pandemic that I thought was going to fizzle out when the pandemic let up a little bit. And I, I've been surprised that there has been a desire and a need for an online community and the and the the kind of opportunities it, it affords that in-person doesn't. So yeah, it's been very interesting to see how pandemics changed this vision. Okay, so I want to slow us down a bit because you you gave us a lot there. First of all, let's go back to the cohort. Mm -hmm. And what are the kinds of trainings or offerings that you give to people who might be interested in this new way of being church? Yeah, so I had some training that that I had been raised up in around church planting that that I found before New Wineskins was its own appointment. So I, I was actually trained in the V3 church planting movement, which is was actually a Virginia Baptist Association that had started doing online cohorts. So I kind of had this model of gathering a small group around experiential learning, helping each other get some traction around what was happening on the ground in our context. I had really been shaped by that. And so when people asked, hey, could we gather? This is what I knew how to do. And and so I would say that the primary kind of learning text that I bring to those cohorts is the context of uh, of ministry. Like, where are you? What, what is God doing around you? But I also have used, so for instance, the church's movement is a text I used a lot through that. But other missional wisdom that's out there about practice and theology comes into that work. But again, I would say experiential learning is really w- what I focus on in those cohorts and, and the incremental growth that experiential learning gives us, which to me is a very like Wesleyan class meeting type thing where we we get together and we talk about what God is doing in our lives. Uh, it might seem mundane, it might seem small, but it's in that methodical focus on the grace that is around us in the moment where we start to actually see change and transformation and growth. If someone were interested in learning more about what you offer and how they could participate, what do they need to do? Yes. Simply reach out to me, you know, contact information for, you know, get my email and it's, it's on our website. And I put those cohorts together each semester. They last three to four months, kind of matching with the school semester. And we meet online. It's an hour long. Try to keep it really simple and doable for what somebody is facing in, in their everyday life. People are busy. Is there a cost to the cohorts? Yes, this it's been it developed 
into a cost because we realized that it really had value. And it also became a way that we've been able to sustain this ministry. You know, we have small worshiping communities. Micro, if you've heard the word microchurch at the beginning, that means little, you know? And so we don't have large crowds that are giving donations. That is definitely a part of our income, but this this helps subsidize that to have these learning communities that church leaders are able to to pay for. Wonderful. So it's it's a key part of your ministry, both in sharing the practice and the learning. Right as well as helping to support the other aspects of your ministry. Yes, and it helps us learn. So what I learned from colleagues and from other people practicing ministry beyond the walls absolutely helps form and shape not only my my own theology and practice, but what I share as a pastor with the people in our worshiping community and in my neighborhood. You know, right now there's so much talk about how all churches need to be uh, engaging more in online connection. So that's the next place I want to go is, so here you are being shaped and formed by getting to know your neighbors and getting out there, meeting one-on-one, having conversations. COVID happens, there's a pivot to online, and you've discovered something about online. So tell us a little bit about your online communities and what happens there. Sure. So we have a weekly worship gathering that's in the afternoon on Sundays. This allowed for a few things. I would say everybody who's a part of that worshiping community, New Wineskins is their primary worshiping community, their church. But it does allow for us to be present in other churches on Sunday mornings, which I think is a really neat thing because that's a huge part of how we understand our life as the church, as a small micro church, online church, is that we're also part of real local churches where we live. So it allows that, but the the real biggest thing is we we're regional. So we have people that join that call from all around Central Texas. And more recently, we had a family that moved. They live in Philadelphia, and they're regular attenders. Like weekly, they're there with us for for that worship gathering as they practice neighboring and building relationships and faith community in their own setting. And so what that looks like, it's it's about an hour long. It's super participatory. It's on Zoom. I think I always have to kind of explain to people the experience a lot of folks had with online worship when you say that has is more of a live stream experience. Mm-hmm. And this would be if you ever were a part of a Sunday school class or a small group during COVID online or have been a part of those kind. So, it, you know, it's very conversational, highly participatory one of the big priorities we have is that we share in the leadership of of the service and and that's kind of goes with the micro church model of everybody has something to bring has gifts to bring and so before you know the week before worship we kind of divvy up different elements and who's going to lead them we send out an audio sermon a couple days beforehand because uh, we want to spend time actually talking about how we've encountered the gospel through scripture and through our own stories. And so that also makes it a little different. There's not a there's not kind of a moment of preaching where you're on a Zoom call you're sitting and listening. And so the elements we we have in that kind of one hour service online is we always practice silence. And so there's mm-hmm. a heavy emphasis on the contemplative life, on contemplative prayer. And so we have, you know, there's tons of resources in church history around silence that we can practice together. And then the storytelling is kind of what's taken place of of the sermon 
as you might think of it. It's where we engage the text and our stories together. We always look at sacrament. These all start with S, by the way. I don't know if you notice, or five S's. Sacrament where, and, and this is for us is so important because it's about the material connection to grace on the ground where we live. And so a lot of times that means we actually do share communion or remembering our baptism, but we often just look at the liturgy and the liturgies of the church and, and look more closely at a small part of it and see how it, wow, this really applies to our life in the community or our life together. We always have an element of sending at the end. And that sending is, is really focused on not just a broad kind of benediction, as much as identifying where it is each person feels called in that next week. Where, where's the Holy Spirit inviting them? And then we commission each other. We actually kind of send each other out to do and to be who God has called us to be. And that fifth one is song. We try to incorporate music, which that's probably the hardest one, to be honest, yeah. with Zoom. And we often listen to music together and mute and you know sing with our families or on our own but uh that one definitely we miss and is tricky but but those other elements are so rich in our time together so what what have you discovered about group size in terms of the capacity to share the depth of what you're talking about yeah back to that the phrase microchurch or the concept of that to to maintain that participation and feeling that that a conversation can take place that every voice matters yeah size impacts that greatly so once you get over about 15 12 to 15 people especially folks that are more introverted uh, are going to be less likely to contribute and so we intentionally try to say stay small if if that online gathering were to grow past that 15 mark we would we would have either breakout rooms or or another gathering altogether. And so size size matters when it comes to, you know, how many people are there and can speak and be heard. So right now you have one group going. We have an online community going. And then the other focus we have is building communities in real time, real space. So I have a in my community, my neighborhood, I should say, we have a monthly dinner church that meets and the connection here is that the online community is kind of an incubator. It's a place for support, for gaining vision and traction around the God-given callings that we have to be in our place. We support each other in that because we are scattered. Mm -hmm. And so there's both this common life and this kind of sent life. And so in my neighborhood, what felt natural for us as we began to get, get to know our neighbors and connect in relationships is we we created a dinner church. And so we have several families from the neighborhood who gather together. It's more casual and less structured. So we basically share a scripture. We use Lectio Divina and look more closely at a short scripture, talk about it together and pray for one another and for our community. And we, we try to organize around the common good in our neighborhood for that dinner church. But there's a lot of kids. There's a lot of food and laughter. It's a totally different setting. And part of the point with new wineskins is that different different wine requires these different wineskins. And so we didn't feel like we could just cookie cutter what we had been doing on the online community to what I'm doing in my neighborhood. And I think mm -hmm. that's going to be true as other people in this incubator are discovering and exploring how they're in relationship and how they form faith gatherings where they are. It's super contextual. So it sounds to me, Ray, speaking in Wesleyan terms, 
then it's almost as if that online community right now is like a, a Wesleyan band. And is your intention for that group of people to then, you know, move out in the community and launch contextualized encounters with their own neighbors? Yes. So yeah, so when I use the word incubator, another another image I have is like a greenhouse with all these little saplings around this mm-hmm. time of year when you're getting ready for the spring to come and you want some a shoot that's already gotten it started a little bit in a very safe environment. Yes, that's what we're trying to do. And I've, you know, I've learned to be patient and I've learned that everybody does this differently. And so we have some people in in that online community that I don't know if and when they will ever have mm-hmm. something like a dinner church. What I do know is that I've seen everybody in that group become more confident and authentic in the way that they engage their faith in their places and with the people that they've been called to, whether it's their workplace or their neighborhood or the school that they're a part of or, or whatever it might be. And so that's a great joy that I experience is seeing people grow and who God has called them to be, where God has called them to be. So yes, I do think some of them will end up starting faith communities that are super authentic to who they are and to what their context is calling for. And others will just learn to be who who they are as followers of Jesus, where they are, which, as you might know, I mean, I think a lot of church folks, folks especially struggle with how to do that. How, how do I live out my faith in a world where I've not been shown how to do that very well? Mm-hmm. So I'm just getting really excited by what you're saying in terms of I'm wondering what is what is the big dream for you? Uh, it's definitely you're an experimental. Well, we're all in experimental <laughs> in the experimental arena in this century. But what are your big questions on your experiment, and what are your hopes for what you're doing? Yeah, I think you know when you say the word dream, I I just have encountered that there are so many amazing people. In the church, and I would say people of faith outside the church, because we know there are a lot of people that want to follow Jesus that aren't going to church, that they know they're called. And by that, I mean, they might not be able to articulate what that looks like, but they know there's purpose in their life. They know that they have gifts. There's There's an ache for something that's broken in the world. And so I would just love to see more of these incubators or greenhouses where where their faith, their sense of vocation, their calling, their ability to to have their capacity grow and their confidence grow, we need more places like that. And I I would just love to see a movement of incubators and greenhouses. Mm -hmm. I feel like that's a phase that we are in. I don't think that's a phase that's going to go away quickly, not in this generation. And then, you know, what I see beyond that is just a very diverse and robust ecosystem of churches and i'll go i'm i'll call them churches there's a little bit of i think discussion around what is church here Mm -hmm. so i can also say faith gatherings or faith communities or even just people of faith living out their calling all of these to me are the same kind of you know impulse of sending and and mission that god is Put us in a place and with the people, how are we going to respond? And so seeing the expressions of that and the answer to that question in people's lives lived out 
gets me really excited. And that's the dream that I have is that those incubators give life to this just diverse, robust ecosystem of people living out their calling and building faith, you know, unique faith communities in mm-hmm. their contexts around it. That's my hope for the future of the church in this kind of time of great change and deconstruction and reconstruction that's right. going on. Well, I see that it's just who you are in both the cohorts that you're doing to help open up and shape and form leaders in the church in that way, and also with the folks in your online community as you shape and form them to be in mission wherever they find themselves in whatever way that makes sense. So I have another question about all this, and that's about funding. Mm -hmm. And because, you know, entering into this micro church and this more organic kind of movement, it's cobbling together funding to make it happen is we're entering into, into new territory there as well. So tell me a little bit about your ideas about funding this kind of ministry. Sure. Yeah. And I, to be very honest, I think there's been so many good ideas, uh, better ideas, I should say, than than where I am. I feel like I am learning a ton about the answer to this question from from people. And and I will say one of the one of the big things I learned early is I need to have coaching and support around entrepreneurial work. I'm I am a trained mm-hmm. pastor in the United Methodist Church. I went to seminary. Like I. I did not have this training to to answer your question, and I'm still feel like a you know novice, very new to figuring this out. And so, at first, what I did is what I, what I knew how to do, and that was to ask the existing church for help. And so, the first few years, we were funded as a new church start, and where I live, at least in in Rio, Texas, there's been funds for that to support me, which I'm super grateful for. But even before then, we went to one of the you know amazing organizations that supports Methodism in our area, the Texas Methodist Foundation, gave mm-hmm. us early grant support, and they continue to be a partner with us. And so, multiple grant sources gave us kind of a runway early on, and also. We said, we really want to make this as low cost as possible. So that was early on thinking about, I mean, even in my family, adjusting to how we pay our bills and how my wife and I work together and doing that as a team, having kind of a strategy for that, because it wasn't going to be the same as it was when I was working at a local church that it felt a little more secure uh, financially. So Mm -hmm. creating that runway. And then as we talked about this pivot during COVID, I was not planning on a cohort ministry. And as we saw God doing this work of gathering leaders around these questions of how to be in the community, we thought there is value here. And this is a value that that church leaders and churches are willing to pay for. And so that has been a growth in that area. And then there's just the classic kind of missionary fundraising work where I have served before this appointment for over 10 years as a pastor in local churches, and I grew up in the church. And so I am going back to those connections and networks and saying, do you believe in this? And if you do, would you support us? And so that has been, I've had to become a a fundraiser. Mm -hmm. And now where I'm seeing growth happen that gives me hope for financial sustainability is, is having closer partnerships with organizations and churches that see what we're doing with value and say, 
we need we need a deeper level of help than a cohort could offer. And so I'm hoping there's a future where, you know, the cost of me, of of, of having somebody that is doing this work and is, has these experiences is valuable to churches and organizations. And then my hope is that the social impact that we have locally in our neighborhoods, in our communities, is of such value that we even apply for grants and funding from secular sources that, and we've seen models for this work in other places. When you have all these parachurch organizations, uh, nonprofits that are meeting people's basic needs, but also we're seeing more and more that these social determinants of health are huge. Loneliness, disconnection, isolation, Mm -hmm. division, that if enabling, particularly in creating communities that, that address this relational need is beginning to have value among secular communities that give money. And so that I also have a hope that that there will be sources of income as we make real social impact in the neighborhoods that we're a part of, communities we're a part of. Well, let's go back to your dinner church. Where do you guys meet? We meet in our home. We meet in our home and that has you know, been intentional in a lot of ways. We don't have another space that we would want to meet in, I don't think. And part of when we moved, we moved more recently into this neighborhood and kind of pushed some restart buttons and got to use a lot of the lessons we'd learned from the, from the get-go here. And, and that was a big thing we looked for. We're like, can we, how many people can we sit, fit around this table? You know, how comfortably can we have 20 kids running around and still have a conversation? You know, those kind of questions came into it. But yeah, our, our home was already a comfortable place for our neighbors. We had already had dinner parties and game nights and gatherings. And, and so home just feels right in the neighborhood. It's where we gather. It's where we do life together. And so obviously it's where we do faith together and where we do church together. And who is the cook? <laughs> it's potluck, as you might imagine. We're Methodists, but you know we we all bring some stuff. You know, somebody has a main. We usually, we tend to do like the easy, you know, soup bar, potato bar, taco bar. Mm-hmm. We've learned through the years that's that's an easy way to go and make sure all dietary needs are met and those kind of things. But we all pitch in for sure. Yeah, the reason why I'm asking these questions is because dinner church seems like such a like, wow, that's, that's an easy thing to do. But then when you get into it, there's so many people that have questions about, you know, who is the cook? What do we do with the kids? Where do we meet? You know, yeah, all that kind of and stuff. I've found, and you, I'd be, you know, interested in this conversation with you. A lot of these terms, dinner church, fresh expression, micro church. I mean, we're, we're just learning what these things mean. And so we have, we all have probably different definitions of them. I call this dinner church not out of some proper definition because I know there's a movement of dinner churches as much as we have dinner together and we do church together. And so it's the best thing I need to call it. So apologies if I am uh, not doing proper dinner church. But but yeah, to answer those questions, we are figuring all of that out. The kids are noisy and and they're running around up and down the stairs as we as we eat together and try to talk, but we're, a lot of us are parents and then there's grandparents that are in that group as well. So they're used to it. That's great. So you've been at this experiment now for three and a half, four years. Mm-hmm. What have been some of your big learnings, or I could put it this way. What, how have you failed forward? Oh, I see. Yes. I mean, I have made a huge and continue to make a huge shift from from planning to discerning. I mean, I know you hear this probably over and over again, but 
you know, I was trained to plan, strategize, implement, execute. You know, those are the words. And mm-hmm. that's how that's how church is done in, in traditional context. For me, that's what I was learning to do. And this just, that doesn't work. When <laughs> you're entering these very flexible and nimble environments that you're discovering what God is doing. And so mm-hmm. the importance of discernment and having the, the muscles, the ability, capacity to discern well, and to just have the theological assumption that God is at work. I mean, that, that, that was a big draw into this ministry was to go, I want to be somewhere where every day I have to ask God, what are you doing? And then do the work of discovering what that is. So, so discernment, it's power, it's, it's challenge, and then just letting go of planning and strategizing. I still find myself wanting to find comfort in that and find control and security and doing those things. But very quickly, whenever I start to do that, I go, oops, this, <laughs> that's not going to work. I'm a part of a community that is dynamic and that knows things I don't know. And, and there's actually freedom when, when you let that go, but it, it continues to be a challenge for me. And then just, you know, I continue to learn how active God is outside of the church. And that, I would say that joy has sustained me. That has been just steady, this discovery of, wow, God is so grace-filled and active and, and moving in places that for years I wasn't even looking. And that is such an encouragement and a learning for me and a blessing. Mm-hmm. So I love that you're talking about a, a contemplative stance in the world, as Elaine Heath would say in this showing up, paying attention, cooperating with God, and then letting go of the outcome. My big question about that, as a practicer of that as well, is there's this waiting upon the Spirit. Mm -hmm. There's this trust and waiting and kind of uh, following the energy. Mm -hmm. And then there's also activation. And I can I I know as a United Methodist pastor myself, there's that pull to, oh man, I got to be doing something. Mm-hmm. But yet the invitation to wait, to show up, to pay attention, to cooperate, and then to let go. So how do you how have you done that dance with yourself? Tell me a little bit about that. It's it is an ongoing adventure and challenge. That's. <laughs> That is the simplest way to answer that. And and everything you described, I identify with, and I feel like our ministry is is built around. And the truth is, I think I struggle with it probably more than most of the people in our community and in my neighborhood. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they have not been as, as deeply entrenched <laughs> in some of the patterns uh, of the church as I have. And so right. they, they help me. They go, Ray, you know, you don't need to <laughs> be in control here, and we can wait. And, and so I'm the one who feels that pressure. And the truth, I mean— how do I deal with that? I mean, I I have a spiritual director, a therapist. I mean, these are things I have to. <laughs> the personal transformation of this journey, you know, and the and really the calling and invitation in God's grace to this journey for me has been as as much a personal one as a, minis- a ministry one. Mm-hmm. And so that continues to be hard. I get anxious sometimes yeah. about you know, are the outcomes we're producing good enough for funding? Are they good enough for my colleagues and my peers? Are are they good enough for my own ego, you know? And so I definitely walk that path of of unpacking that stuff, 
but I, I welcome it because it's been a part of my own healing and movement toward wholeness through that contemplative path. And and I think also giving, it's been amazing speaking that good news in our community and saying, we can wait. We move at the speed of trust and we can wait for you to be ready. And I've had to have, I've had to pull myself back. I probably have pushed sometimes people in my community. I know I have and had to go, you know what? I was wrong to push or to say that you should do this when you're not ready. But, you know, you also said something, there is a tremendous amount of courage that is required for this ministry as well and trust in God and in each other. And there's mm-hmm. a lot of failure. There's a lot of feeling like that didn't go how I expected it. And so this isn't, this is not passive work or ministry. This is an adventure, but like any adventure, we can't decide, you know, on a, where that waterfall is going to come or where that bird is going to fly across and catch our breath or, you know, where we're going to sprain that ankle. Like we don't, we're not in charge of that, but it will come if we keep walking steadily. And it certainly has for us. That's wonderful. So what has been your biggest unlearning? Hmm. You've talked about it, but I just want you to kind of like, if there was one thing that you said, oh yeah, if you're going to do this kind of work, this is the first kind of unraveling of inherited church to this new way of being. Yeah, I I think I I mentioned the shift from from planning to discerning. And Mm -hmm. that is... That is always an unlearning that I have to do, and I'm getting better at it. It's is it my mo yet? Is it my default to discern? I am so much closer than I used to be, but but that is still a process that I'm in, and that I would I would you know, and the part that goes with that that you mentioned is patience and this waiting grace gracefully. Mm-hmm for for God to move is to say I am not I am not going to decide when we go because there is a spirit that is at work that I want to follow <laughs> and I want to go when the spirit says go and so that takes some patience and there's a lot of unlearning and I would say related to that is all of the kind of control mechanisms that help us feel comfortable and in control and secure you got to unlearn those at a deeper level. And I, I'm speaking, I think, more now about myself as a pastor and a leader. Than, and I, I think this is somewhat true of most of the people in our community, but it's definitely true for me that if you want to go on this journey, you know, there's going to be a lot of that deep unlearning in yourself of, you know, what, what helps me feel like what I'm doing matters and is worth it. You know, that's going to change as you learn to discern and be patient but the joy and the freedom and the healing that comes with that, I wouldn't trade it for anything. Yeah, and and added to that is this sense that when we are, when we take that contemplative stance of discernment and follow the energy of the spirit, things happen that we never thought possible. Mm-hmm. It's like I call it riding the wave of grace. Mm-hmm. We're no longer pushing the boulder up the hill in that mm-hmm. inherited planning church way, but. It's like, oh my gosh, we've caught the wave, mm-hmm. and wow, hold on tight. Yes, and and I think I don't like surprises when I'm trying to be in control, but I love surprises when the <laughs> one who when the one who gives them knows me so well and loves me, and so I I'm surprised all the time. Things I did not expect, ex- didn't script, 
happen all the time in this work and blow me away. And then I go, why am I still surprised? And yet there's a joy in that, the unexpected oh, joy yes. of discovering something that I didn't plan and then going, this is God, this is grace mm-hmm. right here. Mm-hmm. What you're saying just brings to mind so many of our clergy colleagues who are at a point of burnout as the inherited church continues to disintegrate and feeling, I would guess, a deep call to something different, but not knowing how to step into that. Mm -hmm. Do you have any words of wisdom for them? You know, I was told by a district superintendent when I came feeling burnout and unsure of how to be in the church anymore, to find the thing that did give me life and ministry Mm. and to make space for that. And that was my neighborhood at that time. And I thought, I I thought that's not going to be enough, but it really led me on this path and everybody's path's different. I am not in any way thinking that everybody's going to do ministry like this. I think some of it will be great ministry in the, in the inherited church, and then the other word, so yeah, do that thing. The other word is listen to and tell the stories of where you do experience life-giving grace. I just think we don't spend enough time telling those stories or we think they're too small or we think they're insignificant. And I find again and again in the work that we're doing in the cohorts, in the worshiping communities, in the neighborhood, is that we need to tell stories better and practice that and keep and not shut ourselves down before we tell it because it's not flashy enough. And when we do that, I find that folks find joy and encouragement and hope that sustains them and lets them go for another day and find healing. Yeah. And lets them know that they're not alone. Exactly. Which is huge. Ray, we've we've had a great conversation. Is there anything that I haven't asked you that you're like, oh my gosh, I need to share this? I don't think so. No, this has been a great conversation. Yeah, nothing's coming. Okay, well, could you close us with a blessing for our fellow pastors who might feel that they're on the edge of... Uh, knowing that what they're doing might not be working, mm. feeling this sense of call, not knowing that next step. Sure. The best way I know to do that is just to, just to pray. So if you'd pray with me. Sure. God of every generation, we thank you that you've invited us into something that's bigger than the span of our lives. And yet sometimes we get so caught in what isn't working right now in this moment. So I pray for colleagues and friends that I don't even know that are struggling in this time of change. And I ask that you encourage them. I ask that you help them to see through maybe stopping for a moment and reflecting, looking back over their day and finding that glimmer, that, that sparkle of, of grace that might have seemed so insignificant that you just rushed past it, but to start there and to know that that grace can sustain its manna that can get you to another day. And I pray that those who feel called, who feel like you're inviting them into something new or different or scary, that uh, you would grant courage and mm-hmm. that you would help them to know that they they are not alone but that you are doing something big. You're scattering us because you have made new wine. 
you're making it all over the place within and beyond the church. And you're calling us to, to make new wine skins, to have a place to hold the good that you were doing together so that it can be a blessing to many. Thank you, God, for all of those people listening and for what you're doing in all of our lives. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Ray. Thank you. Church is Changing Podcast is a production of Discipleship Ministries, an agency of the United Methodist Church. Music is by Sanjay Singh. Visit all our podcasts at podcast.umcdiscipleship.org.